Let's pray together. Father, on the basis of the work of Christ and his life and death and resurrection, and for the glory of his name, through the power of your spirit, we ask that you would give us the grace in these next moments to learn and to understand that we might better love your word, that we would be more devoted to your teachings, that, Father, we would be doers and not hearers only. And so help us again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I woke up this morning with no voice. So um, I haven't talked all day. I've tried to save it. So we're going to see how this goes. So please pray for me uh, as we uh, embark on this journey together. Uh, Isaiah 46.10, God declares, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The session is going to be a little bit different than the other sessions of our conference. Uh, My assigned task tonight is not so much to preach as it is to guide us in tracing how God accomplished his purpose of giving his word to us. As we were planning this conference, the point was made that many believers do not really know or understand how the Bible came to be. And because of this, they have many questions. How can I know? That the words recorded in the Sermon on the Mount are the actual words that Jesus spoke. How can I know that these 66 books of the Bible are truly scripture and that there are no divinely inspired books that ought to be in there that are not in there? Why are there so many Bible translations? How do we know which ones are trustworthy? And so those are the kinds of questions that I hope this session will help answer. I want you to have your Bibles ready. We're going to turn to to several different passages. Please understand that this is going to be a very basic overview of how God has given the Bible to us. And I want to trace what God has done in four steps. And let me warn you ahead of time that Uh, I got through two of the steps in my sermon and realized I was already out of time. And so we're going to spend most of our time on the first two. And I'm just going to mention the second two at the end. So don't be scared because you know there's four steps and 40 minutes from now we're still on step two. I want you to understand uh, there's four steps and we're going to spend most of our time on the first two. So how did God bring the Bible to us? Well, step one is inspiration. So everybody say inspiration. Inspiration. How did God cause his truth to be written down? How did God's truth take the form of human language? Well, God did this through inspiration. So go back with me to a passage we saw in our last session, 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. 3.16, a scripture I'm sure that you know well, one that is very significant. 2 Timothy 3.16, I just want you to notice those opening words. All scripture is breathed out by God. The teaching here is clear. All scripture begins with God. All scripture has its origin in the mind and the heart of God. When you read the scripture, you are reading the very thoughts of God himself. God is the Bible's ultimate author. It is the word of God. Now, the picture of the scriptures being breathed out by God is a picture of of God's truth being expressed from him in the person of the Holy Spirit. 
You see, God's spirit is often associated with breath, the breath of God in the scriptures. Think of Genesis 2. God formed man of dust and then breathed into him and he became a living being. God's spirit proceeds forth from him as the divine breath carrying the divine word. And of course, we cannot talk about the word of God without remembering that Christ is the ultimate word of God, that Christ is the ultimate expression of God himself. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So since Jesus Christ is the ultimate word of God, the ultimate expression of God, the fullness of deity dwelling bodily, then the word which God sends forth through the Holy Spirit must center on Christ himself. And so what I want you to understand is that divine inspiration is a Trinitarian reality. A Trinitarian reality. The word of God originates with the Father. It centers on the Son and it comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And the entire Godhead is joined together in this great project of loving God's people by bringing to them the most glorious truths in the world. To which I simply ask, are we thankful? Are we grateful? Remember, it was through the Bible that you heard the gospel and were born again. Now, you may have been reading the Bible yourself. My dad was converted reading the Bible at a, a guardhouse outside of Fort Campbell, just by himself, reading the Bible. Maybe you were born again under the preaching of the Bible. Maybe you were born again because a friend was sharing with you truths from the Bible. Maybe you were born again listening to a song that expressed the truths of the Bible. But however you were born again, I assure you, it was connected to the Bible. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to save the people of God. So this Bible project that Father, Son, and Spirit performed was crucial not just so that you would know some things about God, but so that you would be saved and know God himself. Now, if we see from this verse that scripture begins with God and comes to us through the Holy Spirit, what did that look like? What did inspiration look like? How did the Spirit take the thoughts of God and put them into human language? And the answer is that the Holy Spirit worked through human agency, through human agency. Look, for example, at 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. I want you to see here that the Spirit of God worked through human beings to take the truth of God and to put it into human language. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 19. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have something sure we have something you can count on. Your bank account, not something you can count on. You could lose everything tomorrow. The government, not something you can count on. It could crumble tomorrow or even turn against you. Your relationships must not be the anchor for your soul. People are sinners. They will let you down. Your job is not a sure thing. Your health is not a sure thing. But we are told that the scriptures 
are a sure thing. And in the scriptures, we have a prophetic word, a word from God that we would do well to pay attention to. We're told we should pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place. Folks, we live in a dark place. False truths being preached to us everywhere, even by our own flesh. There is coming a day when we will not need the Bible, when God's truth will be fully developed within us and around us, but that day is not yet here. And so if we're to think rightly, if we're to believe rightly, if we're to love rightly, we must look to this light, the light of the Scriptures. But as we do... Peter says we should have this in mind first of all. You saw those words? First of all. In other words, when you approach the scriptures, there is something that must be foundational, fundamental to your approach. This must be at the bottom of everything else as you come to the Bible. What is it? It's the fact that the Bible is not the work of men, but of God. That word interpretation, you see that word interpretation? Literally in the the Greek, the word means to loosen, to unfold. The idea is that no word of scripture was unleashed or unfolded by the will of man. When you read the book of Genesis and look at chapter 1, you are not just reading Moses' opinion of how the world was created. When you read the Proverbs, you are not just reading Solomon's opinion of what the wise life looks like, but rather, as verse 21 makes abundantly clear, men spoke from God. So the Holy Spirit used human agency to put God's truth into human language. In fact, our verse says that these people were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that word carried along can also be translated as driven. Back in Acts 27, Paul talks about the ship that he was in being caught up in a tempestuous wind that ultimately caused the ship to wreck. And he uses this very same word saying, when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. And so this picture of the ship being driven by the wind is the idea here of human beings being driven by the Spirit to take the truths of God and put them into human language. The Holy Spirit came upon human beings Work through their minds, work through their hearts, work through their tongues, work through their hands to cause God's truth to be communicated to us. Be careful. Don't picture men becoming like robots. Don't picture Moses entering into a trance in which he loses all control of his body and the Spirit uses him like a puppet to write things down. That is certainly not the ordinary way it appears to have happened. Rather, the evidence seems to suggest that the Spirit worked through the minds and the hearts of the human writers. We often see the personalities of the human authors coming out in the pages of the Bible. And yet all of this is consistent with what God determined to give to us. It is interesting to consider all the various people and the means God used to have his truth written down. Parts of the Bible were written by God's own finger, the Ten Commandments, written in stone by the very finger of God. We find pagan authors quoted in the scriptures. Nebuchadnezzar, The Babylonian king is the author of a portion of the book of Daniel. Sometimes God used dreams and visions to communicate to biblical authors. So his means varied. The people he used varied. But here's the point. The scriptures have their origin in God and their center in Christ. And the spirit brought to us God's truth using human agency. That's what we call divine inspiration. Step two, 
canonization. Everybody say canonization. Once we understand that God has called certain human beings to write down his truth, we then have something to figure out. Which writings were inspired by God? How, how do we know which writings are truly scripture and which writings are not? Well, the process of determining which books are divinely inspired and therefore carry divine authority is called canonization. That word canon means rule or standard. The canon of scripture means those books that carry the very authority of God himself. Now, just to illustrate the issue here, I went to college with a student who loved to argue that he thought C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity ought to be included as a part of holy scripture. He liked that book a lot. <laughs> he thought it was worthy of being considered holy scripture. So my question is, how do we respond to a suggestion like that? How do we know that it's just the 66 books of our Bible that were divinely inspired and that those are the only ones that carry divine authority? Well, for Christians, proving that the Old Testament books are truly scripture is not difficult at all if we can prove that the New Testament books are truly scripture. And that's because the New Testament affirms the inspiration and authority of the Old Testament. The New Testament speaks often of the Old Testament as the word of God. So if we can show that the New Testament is indeed the word of God and that those books truly belong in the canon of Scripture, then it's easy for us as Christians to affirm the Old Testament. We believe it because the New Testament says so. And if it's the word of God, then the Old Testament must be the word of God. Just to give you a couple of examples John 10, 35, Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage and then says, Scripture cannot be broken. Clearly in Jesus' mind, Old Testament is Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul, as Justin mentioned earlier, was referring here in that term, sacred writings, to the entirety of the Old Testament. The writings that Timothy had as a young Jewish boy, taught to him by his mother and his grandmother, Paul calls them sacred writings. Verse 16, he calls them scripture. So if the New Testament is the word of God, we can affirm that the Old Testament is as well. With one minor problem, the Apocrypha. Um, in a Roman Catholic Bible, you find these books between the Old Testament and the New Testament that some would argue we ought to include as scripture. See, in Jesus' day, there were two popular versions of the Old Testament. One was the traditional Hebrew Old Testament called the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is what the Jews call their Bible. It's the same as our Old Testament, except that our 39 books in the Tanakh, are condensed, or not condensed, consolidated into 24. So, for example, we have 1st and 2nd Samuel. In the traditional Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, it's just Samuel. In our Bible, we have 12 minor prophets. In the Tanakh, they are all one book. So the Tanakh is the same as our Old Testament, just the books are consolidated. They're also in a different order. In the Tanakh, there is the law, then the prophets, then the writings. And so you would find Isaiah before you find the book of Kings in the Tanakh. Now, you have that Hebrew Old Testament in the days of Jesus. 
But then you also have what's called the Septuagint. Everybody say Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation. Okay? The Septuagint was the Greek version of the Old Testament. But it switched up the order of books. In fact, our Old Testament follows the Septuagint. The order of books in our Old Testament, the way they're broken up, follows the Septuagint. But the Septuagint included the Apocrypha. The Septuagint included these books that some people claim ought to be a part of our Scripture. Does that mean that we also ought to accept those books as inspired by God? Should we be looking to the Apocrypha as a light shining in the darkness? Well, the answer appears to be no. The New Testament seems to indicate that it was the Hebrew Bible and the books of the Hebrew Bible that were the word of God and not the Apocrypha. Jesus appears to have been referring to the books of the Hebrew Bible and not the Septuagint when he quoted scripture. Go with me to Luke 24. Luke 24. I feel like I'm barking at you trying to get my voice out. I'm sorry if I am. Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now here's the question. All right, which Bible did Jesus use? When Jesus referred to Scripture, when Paul referred to Scripture, were they referring to the Tanakh? Were they referring to the Septuagint? If they were referring to the Septuagint, then we're missing some books. Well, Jesus seems to have been using the Tanakh as his scripture. Notice the order. Law, then prophets, then Psalms. Well, that's not the way it is in our Bibles. Right? In our Bibles, it's law, Psalms, prophets. But in the Hebrew Tanakh, that was the order. Law first, then prophets, then writings, of which the Psalms were the largest book. So the indication here is that Jesus did use the Hebrew Bible. And when he spoke of scripture, he was referring to the books that we now know as the Old Testament. No Apocrypha. One more piece of evidence. Luke 11. Luke 11. This was probably even even clearer. Luke 11. Beginning in verse 49. Luke 11, beginning in verse 49. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Notice that Jesus, wanting to indicate all the prophets who were killed in the Old Testament, basically says, from Abel to Zechariah. Okay? So he mentions beginning and end. All of those prophets, from Abel to Zechariah. In the Hebrew Bible, I'm sorry, in the Septuagint, as well as our Old Testament that follows the order of the Septuagint, the Zechariah referred to here is not the last prophet mentioned who was killed. 
In the Hebrew Bible, however, in the Tanakh, Chronicles was the last book of the Tanakh. And in Chronicles, we read of Zechariah being killed. In other words, Jesus' statement from Abel to Zechariah only makes sense if his Bible was the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, no Apocrypha. So, finally on this point, let me just mention that even most of the Jews of Jesus' day recognized that the Apocrypha were not Scripture. The consensus, even in Jesus' day, was that after Haggai, after Zechariah, after Malachi, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel, and there was a period of silence. Orthodox Jews believe that silence continues to this day, but we as Christians believe that the Spirit began speaking again in the days of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. So, Old Testament, New Testament, no Apocrypha. If we can show that the New Testament books are the true inspired word of God, then the Old Testament is taken care of. What is the evidence that the 27 books of our New Testament are in fact Holy Scripture? Nod your head if you're tracking with me. Are you tracking? Okay. We're going to fly through several passages of Scripture very quickly. So just get your fingers ready to walk. We're going to start in Matthew, work our way through, see the evidence that the New Testament books are the Word of God. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Get into verse 28. Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So we see here that after years of silence from God, Jesus appears on the scene teaching with an authority that was not normal. An authority that was beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. There's a special authority to the way Christ is speaking. Go to Mark 13. Mark 13, verse 31. And listen to the statement Jesus makes here. Mark 13, verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus here puts his words on the level of the Old Testament scriptures, right? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of Yahweh, Jehovah, endures forever. Jesus here claims that his words are the words of God himself. Jesus says, my words will not pass away. So we have a clear claim of Jesus Christ that his own words are on the same level as scripture. C.S. Lewis, either he was lying or he was crazy or he was telling the truth. We have to decide. Don't turn there. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God's work of giving divinely inspired scripture had ceased for a time, but now that work has begun again through Jesus Christ, but not just through Jesus. Look at Luke 6. Luke 6, verse 13. Luke 6, verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Now, Jesus already had a large number of disciples. But here he chooses 12 and he gives them the name Apostle. 
An apostle is an authoritative representative. These 12 were to be given special access to Christ as they were being prepared for the day when they would be the official spokesman of Jesus so that Jesus not only spoke words of God himself, but through these authoritative representatives, he would continue to speak after his ascension. We see evidence of this in the book of John, John 14, John 14. I hear fingers getting weary. Pages are not turning as loudly as they were before. John 14. Surely you're not going to take my word for this. Not after what Justin just preached. Better not. John 14, beginning in verse 24. Beginning in verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus draws a comparison between himself and his disciples. He says, the words I speak are not my own. I speak the words of my father. I am an apostle of my father. I am the sent one of my father. But after he is taken away, the the 12 will be given the Holy Spirit in such a way that they will speak the words of the father. And he says the Spirit will instruct them and bring to their minds the truths that Jesus had taught them for their own benefit? No. For the benefit of others. And this includes written form. Look at John 16, very close to that. John 16, beginning in verse 12. John 16, beginning in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The disciples were not able to learn everything they needed to proclaim the truths of God well in their time with Jesus. Our Savior is a gentle shepherd. He knows that if he just unloads the full weight of glorious truth upon us at one time, we will not be able to bear it. And so Christ worked with his disciples as Christ works with us, with patience. And those things that, he was, that they were not yet able to bear that he was not able to to communicate to them during his time with them. He says, those things will be given to you by the Holy Spirit. And so the Gospels seem to indicate that God had begun the work of giving his people new scriptures and that this began with Christ and that this was going to continue through the apostles of Christ. And the rest of the New Testament bears this out. 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. An astounding statement. If I said it, you'd need to kick me out of here. Paul said it. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Think about that statement. Paul basically says here that if anyone disagrees with what he is writing, that person should doubt whether or not he is even a spiritual person. Right? He says that if anyone doubts him, They are doubting the command of God 
How can he say something like that? The only way he can make a statement like that is if Paul is convinced from the top of his head to the bottom of his toes that he is giving them truth from God. That he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, a representative of the King of Kings, and that the Spirit is working through him to give divine, authoritative revelation. Jesus, by his Spirit, working through Paul, carrying Paul to put God's truth into human language. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. I decided not to try and even out all four points, but to spend a lot of time on this one because I want you to be confident. I want you to have surety about your Bible. That it's no accident that those particular books made it in. And when you hear on the news tomorrow that some new gospel was found, they unearthed the, I don't know, the gospel of somebody else from the first century. And, and people start saying, I think that should have been included. I want you to know why the books that are in your New Testament are in the New Testament. So that you can have confidence about them. And by having confidence in them, confidence in the Old Testament. And therefore the whole Bible. Ephesians 2 verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, so the church of the Lord Jesus has Jesus as the cornerstone. Take the cornerstone out, building collapses. Take Christ away, there is no church. Christ is the cornerstone. The church is growing, being built up century after century as people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are being saved. The church is growing. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven are growing. But the foundation of the church has been laid once for all time. And what is the foundation of the church? What is the church built upon? Paul says it's the apostles and prophets. Not them themselves. The words that they spoke. The scriptures, the writings of Jesus' apostles and prophets are the foundation on which the church is built. That's why we go to the Bible to learn how to do church and be a good dentist. Paul understood that he was writing scripture And he understood that what he was writing would be the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ in every culture, in every century. And he wasn't the only apostle that understood that. Look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 15. 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> Can you testify to that? There's some things in Paul that are hard to understand. (laughs) Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Here we have a clear indication that Peter placed the letters of Paul alongside the scriptures of the Old Testament. Peter includes Paul's letters under the category of Scripture. Why? Because Christ himself had taught that the Holy Spirit would work through his apostles to proclaim divine, authoritative truth. So why can't C.S. Lewis's book be included? I like C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis was not an apostle of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis was not an authorized representative of our Lord. 
What the apostles did was unrepeatable. One last verse, Jude 1. Well, there is only one. Jude 3, verse 3 of Jude. Verse 3 of Jude. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude clearly sees the truths of God as constituting a set body of beliefs. There is something called the faith that we are to contend for. He does not see Christianity as this amorphous thing in which new beliefs and new ideas are being brought in at various times and in various places. In Jude's mind, Christ's coming was a once-for-all-time event, and therefore the preaching and the teaching and the writing of the apostles was a once-for-all-time event, and the faith has been delivered. There is no new doctrine that we're waiting for, and therefore we will have a new book added to our Bibles. Now, the early church had this task of discerning which books truly belong in the New Testament, which ones are truly inspired by the Holy Spirit, which ones are not. In accordance with what we have seen, the supreme mark that they looked for in a book was apostolicity or apostolicity. You want to try and say that? Say apostolicity. A couple of you got it. Was this book written by an apostle? Was this book written with the endorsement of an apostle? Can we connect this book to an apostle? That was the supreme mark. Don't picture a bunch of guys sitting around in a room saying, well, I kind of like the way Mark's gospel sounds. I prefer that one. That's not the way it happened. Canonization was the work of the church under the providential guiding of God looking for apostolicity out of obedience to Jesus Christ, who had promised that it was going to happen. Matthew, written by an apostle. Matthew. Mark, written by Mark, the apostle Peter's assistant and interpreter. Paul had his Timothy. Peter had his Mark. Luke and Acts, maybe Hebrews, written by Luke. Luke, by the way, wrote most of the New Testament, even more than Paul. Luke acts together. Take out Hebrews. Luke acts together is more of the New Testament than any other author. Luke was Paul's partner. Luke was a part of Paul's inner circle. John wrote his gospel, the letters, Revelation, an apostle. The letters of Paul were written by Paul, an apostle. Hebrews, probably written by Luke or Paul. Okay? Even if it wasn't written by Luke or Paul, it is very clear, at least to my understanding, that it was written by someone within the Pauline circle. That whoever wrote Hebrews certainly had Paul's endorsement behind it. Look up Hebrews 13, 22 through 24 tonight. We don't have time. But Hebrews 13, 22 to 24, notice the mention of our brother Timothy, right? Seems to indicate this was somebody who was closely associated with Paul. James, written by James, the brother of Jesus, called an apostle in Galatians 1.19. Peter, an apostle. Jude, the brother of James, presumably writing with James's endorsement. The church did not create the canon of Scripture. The church simply recognized the canon of Scripture. Jesus promised that his apostles would lay a foundation of truth and doctrine for his church. The process of choosing what goes into the New Testament was the process of verifying what truly came from an apostle. The process was held up because of controversy about Hebrews, about 2 Peter, about Jude. But in the end, the evidence in favor of those books, I think rightly so, won out. 
process came to an end in the late 300s. Church recognized the 27 books we know now, Synod of Hippo. And since the New Testament has been verified as the word of God, the Old Testament must be as well. All right, that's canonization. Very quickly, we're just going to mention these and go home. Step three, transmission. Step three is transmission. Remember until 1516, Erasmus, when he first printed the Greek New Testament, before that, all copies of Scripture had to be hand-copied. So God sovereignly preserved his word for us through the careful, loving work of scholars and monks. We don't have any original manuscripts. We don't have the original piece of papyrus that Matthew wrote on. But we don't have the original manuscript of anything written on papyrus in the first century, so that shouldn't surprise us. But because of these scholars and monks who gave themselves to hand-copying the Bible, we have over 5,700 manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts from ancient times to work with. In fact, it's just been announced um, we're going to get more details 2013 that a new bunch of scripture has been found. Other copies have been found, including a copy of a fragment, a fragment of a copy from Mark's gospel dating perhaps to the first century itself, which if that's true, that's astounding. There are men like Bart Ehrman, UNC Chapel Hill, who... Who claimed that the scriptures, sorry, who claimed that the scriptures became so distorted through transmission that we can't trust them? Bart Aaron basically claims that as scribe after scribe, monk after monk copied the pages of scripture, they just made so many mistakes that we can't rely on what's in our Bible today. It's just simply untrue. Because of the great number of manuscripts that God has given to us, because of the loving work of those men throughout the centuries, when there's a discrepancy between two copies, we can often find which one is accurate by simply consulting the other manuscripts. Consider this quote from F.J.A. Hort. The proportion of words... Virtually accepted on all hands as raised above doubt is great, not less on a rough computation than seven-eighths of the whole. So talking about the New Testament, there is no debate about seven-eighths of the New Testament that we have the actual words written by the authors. The remaining one-eighth, formed in great part by changes of order and other comparative trivialities, constitutes the whole area of textual criticism and the words, in our opinion, still subject to doubt, only make up about one-sixtieth of the whole New Testament. So he says, since this thing has come up called biblical criticism, textual criticism, where men are trying to figure out, all right, we have three manuscripts, and one says, for God so loved the world, and the other one says, the world God so loved, and we need to figure out which one is right. Because of that, we've been able to get to the bottom of a lot. So that now, he says, only one-sixtieth of the New Testament is really in question about do we have the actual words that were written. Substantial variation is but a small for action of the whole residuary variation can hardly form more than one one thousandth part of the entire text. He says as far as substantial differences between one manuscript and another, where one manuscript says something that is substantially different than another one, and we're not sure which one is right, he says that's one one-thousandth of the New Testament. So God has preserved his word for us through blood, sweat, and tears of men that God raised up for the good of your soul over centuries. Men who maybe you'll get to meet in heaven, who through their work, the Bible came to you. That's transmission. Step four. Translation. Say translation. I would venture to guess that most of us in here do not know how to read Hebrew or Hellenistic Greek. And so we have to rely on translations. And God has raised up godly men and women who give themselves to this work. We should praise 
God for Bible translators. We should especially praise God and pray for those who are doing the hard work of translating the scriptures into the heart languages of people who do not have the scriptures. We also need to remember that there are men who gave their lives that the Bible would be translated into the language of the common man. There is a very real sense in which the Bible comes to us with blood on it. First, the blood of Christ, through whom we'd have no gift of grace, but even also the blood of many of Christ's people. In our day, there are a massive number of translations available. Most popular right now in the United States is the New International Version. Um, you might be interested to know Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News Channel, holds the rights to the New International Version. I would suggest that the kind of translation you want is one that is as literal as possible while also being readable. I would encourage you to strongly use the, to strongly consider using the translation that your pastor uses so that you can better follow along in the worship service. If you want to check out another translation, I would strongly encourage you to talk to your pastor about the ones that he would recommend. The absolute most literal that I know of are probably the New American Standard and the Holman Christian Standard. They are very accurate, very literal, and sometimes awkward because of how literal they are. But they're excellent translations. Following these would be the English Standard Version as well as the New King James Version, both excellent, accurate translations, a little bit easier to read, in my opinion. Talk to your pastors, see what they think. Paraphrases like the NIV or others can be helpful, but you need to recognize that they are phrase-by-phrase paraphrases rather than word-for-word translations, and especially um, paraphrases like the Living Bible, the Message, most of your children's Bible translations. Um, You really need to understand that those are really more useful as commentary on the Bible. Uh, They're not really a literal translation of the Scripture. All right, I hope this has been helpful. The big picture is that God sovereignly and graciously worked throughout history to cause his word to be written down, canonized, transmitted, and translated so that it could be in your hands tonight. And through this word, we are brought to God himself. Through this word, we are born again and brought into the love of Christ. And so the question for me and the question for you again is simply this. Are we thankful for the gift of the word of God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your help in allowing me to have some voice. Thank you for attentive listeners on what some might consider a dull or uninteresting subject. Now, Father, I ask that you would take what has been said and bring real help from it. I know I'm no scholar of these things. If I've said anything that was untrue, bring correction. But Father, I pray that you would increase our confidence in your word and that by increasing our confidence in your word, I pray that you would cause us to fall more in love with our Savior Give us faith to trust him more. Help us to become more obedient to him. May he truly be our treasure and our portion. And because we know our Savior through his word, may his word be precious to our souls. Give us safe travel to our homes tonight. Give us good rest. Give us great days tomorrow as we fulfill our various roles and vocations, callings. And then, Father, I ask that we would be able to gather again tomorrow night that your spirit would teach us yet again for your glory and our good. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.